everyone, Ian and Jono here. Welcome to the fourth of our bonus episodes talking to Essendon fans about their experiences and stories. The aim of these episodes is to hear from the people that make the wider Essendon family a great community to be part of. The 150th year may not have been the best on-field celebration of the club, but off-field the commemoration of the club's grand history has been thorough and absorbing. From the Bombers docuseries that went to air at the start of the year, the Fabric podcast and the Red and Black collection, the tales and feats of the Essendon Football Club have been put on glorious display. One man who has played a key role in putting all these together has been Dr. Dan Eddy, author and football historian who has captured these moments in vivid details on the page and on screen. He's graciously given up some of his time to talk to us about his work and his passion for the Bombers and joins us for our fourth bonus episode of Don the Stat. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. And, and Jono, mate, uh, you've been doing great work yourselves this year, so congrats on everything you've done. Yeah, no, thank you, mate. It's, uh, it would have been nice to have been doing it for, for all of us, I guess, with a little bit more on-field success, but uh, I, I think that the great part out of it is we have had the opportunity to connect with a lot of really passionate Essendon fans and it's a good reminder that, you know, Essendon isn't just about what happens on the field on a, you know, on a Friday night or Saturday afternoon. It, it's it's much bigger uh, and greater than all of that. And, yeah, I have to admit, we were, Ian and I were both really excited when you agreed to join us. We're, we're both fascinated by the history of, of Essendon, as you probably picked up from my own musings that, you know, for me, it goes back to listen, as a little kid listening to stories that my grandfather told. Um, but, yeah, Dan, for, for those that aren't too familiar with the, the Dr. Dan Eddy story, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you live in Leon Gatha, Dyson Heppel country, of course, with your, your young bloke, Ernie. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a rich sporting area down my way. And, um, yeah, my, my brother... One of my younger brothers, or maybe both of them, uh, grew up playing with Dyson and and Jared Ruffhead and those guys in in the Randland Gather. And I'm, we go back. My parents knew Dyson's parents back at a young age as well. I think so. We, we sort of had that connection going through. But um, yeah, I've been a passionate bomber for most of my life. My dad's a Saints man, and early days he did his best to make me a Saint fan. And I had the little St Kilda jumper, and but we moved. We moved towns uh, when I was in grade four and um, uh, the, in the schoolyard, uh, a lot of the kids when I was watching them doing kick to kick and, you know, you're trying to work out who you could make friends with. Every, everyone was yelling out names like Tim Watson and Michael Long and, and guys like this. So uh, my, my uh, realisation then was I needed to uh, get out of this St Kilda stuff ASAP and, and find, a, find a team that's going to uh, fit in with the people. And uh, so that was grade four. So it started then, which is uh, probably about 1990-ish. Yeah, but um, yeah, so from then on, uh, I just have soaked up the Essendon history as much as possible and I used to read everything I could uh, on the club and, and just footy and sport history in general and, and then uh, and I was fascinated in names like Dick Reynolds and John Coleman and, and these guys and uh, yeah so I really started in about grade four. There you go, it's funny you mentioned the St Kilda connection, my, uh, my great-grandfather on my mum's side played two games for Saints pre-World War One, oh. and then came home with... Yeah, as a lot of guys of that time did with uh, war, more mental injuries for him than, than physical ones and um, played VFA and Paran after that. But my mum's family are St Kilda fans and there, there is a photo of my brother who they briefly convinced to barrack for St Kilda when he was about four wearing a St Kilda jumper, which he, 
he still likes to deny exists, but uh, but yeah, we do have some evidence of it. He's he's of course now been a lifelong Dons Dons fan ever since. Uh, can you remember the first Essendon game you went to? Yeah, we lived. Uh, well, I was born in Langatha, but we lived up in Northern Victoria for much of my schooling uh, past Shepherd, and so it was a bit of a hike to get down to the footy. So I didn't actually get to an Essendon game until uh, about ninety. 94-ish, so I must have been 13, 14, um, my first uh, Essendon game. So it was, you can imagine the thrill walking into the MCG for the first time and, and uh, you know, heard, you know, a young herd and a young Wanganeen was still there and um, Tim Watson was near the end. It was his 301st game or something. I'd just missed his 300th. Um, yeah, it was an amazing thrill. I'd, I'd just been wanting to go for so long. We'd been to a couple of mums Collingwood, so we'd been to a couple of St Kilda and Collingwood games and uh, finally got them to convince, convince them to go to an Essendon game and uh, yeah, from then on it was amazing and and then later on, uh, you know, I was I was there every week once I was old enough to get myself there and it was um, so it started sort of early to mid-90s, yeah. Yeah, that's great and uh, did you have a, a number on your jumper early days? Oh, I was a big, big Gavin Wanganee. I, you know, I loved Gavin when he burst onto the scene in 93, really. And um, I was gutted when he left. But by then, Herdy and McCurry were really emerging as, as our next superstars. So uh, they were able to fill the gap pretty quickly. But uh, I, I was definitely, Gavin was number one for me in those early couple of years before he went back to Adelaide. Yeah, I was gutted when he left. I remember being quite young and crying at news, um, unashamedly. But yeah, he was um, he was pretty special, wasn't he? Um, fast forwarding a little bit, King Richard, the, the Dick Reynolds story was your first release in 2014. I think you've you've then gone on to to write a, a lot of books in a short space of time, I think twelve in six years. Um, and I also yeah look. It took the chance to have a look at your site last week and watch the um, the presentation you gave at the Hero Roundtable a few years ago. So, um, you know, beyond just writing and, and publishing, you're also a big mental health advocate. Was was writing and becoming a, a published author always the dream or, or was it something that, that more found you because of, of what you were going through? Yeah, no, thanks. It was um, – no, I knew – I knew through school, it sounds a bit wanky, but I knew through school years that I I was destined to do something a bit different than what everyone else was interested in. I just didn't know exactly what that was. And, you know, I'd be soaking, I'd be reading club histories and league histories and things happening overseas and that, whereas others <laughs> weren't really interested in that sort of thing. I, I was happy to spend hours just reading reading books on my own. So, you know, collecting newspapers and I was doing all that and I, I didn't know what it was for at the time but when I was when I was 15 we brought us four kids down to the grand final parade in the city um, the year that Hurdy won the Brownlow in 96 and um, we you know we, we watched that and I was just in awe of seeing these guys up close and then we're walking back through the crowd after the after the parade and there's this elderly gentleman in a trench coat walking through the middle, middle of the Burke Street Mall and it was Dick Reynolds and no one else recognised him except me, uh, this kid. So I grabbed a bit of paper out of Mum's bag and ran up and hi, Mr. Reynolds. Can I please have your autograph? And he was he was lovely and um, went away and um, 
from that day on, I really was always looking for a book on Dick's life. Uh, every time I was in a bookshop, I'd be looking and there just never was one. So through my own mental health journey over the over the years where I struggled to keep jobs and struggled to, in just everyday life and eventually my mid to late 20s, I just decided, look, I'm going to try and write this story on Dick. I didn't know what it entailed. I didn't have any training, um, and, yeah, anything really. I just sort of started approaching people out of the blue and um, it soon became quite addictive for me and I realised that it was something that uh, helped to channel my thoughts a bit in a, in a positive sense and, you know, whenever I was interviewing someone or looking at, you know, uh, looking for research, uh, it uh, allowed me to think of more clearly about um, about myself and feel better about myself. So it's sort of become quite addictive in a way and a real sort of lifesaver for me. And I just grew from there, really, and it's amazing. I interviewed probably 200 people for this story. That was a journey in itself, you know, and, uh, um, yeah, from then on it's just become something that's part of my life. Yeah, and I guess it gave you really good uh, backgrounding into leading into the 150th celebration. I imagine you would have got, you know, a lot, a lot of the work that probably went into the 150th celebration, particularly the the early stuff, you know, came from that that early research. How did you how did you get involved with that? Like, how, how long has it been in the planning, in terms, particularly all the commemorations and, and his history aspects of it? Yeah, well, yeah, and no, it's, it's amazing what you retain. I can't remember what I went up the street for five minutes ago, but I can remember everything that I, you know, it all soaked in in terms of the history when I was reading, and so it's sort of second nature to me now. But um, I, I I wrote the second book on Essendon called Always Striving, a, a club history that was uh, about 2017, and just sort of looked at different points in the club's history to tell the stories of people or grand finals or, or things like that. And, um, it was after that that I'd had a few discussions with the club and they realised uh, Xavier Campbell and uh, Justin Brodsky um, who realised that, um, you know, I was pretty passionate about what I was doing. And, and then once uh, they realised they were getting close to this 150-year milestone, they um, they asked me to be involved. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what that would entail, but they realised that they wanted to do a special book for it and they wanted to do a few other things, I suggested. The idea of some podcasts, um, they were all going to be filmed and audio, but uh, it was mainly just ended up being published as audio. But, um, yeah, so I had a few ideas and they had some as well. So it just sort of timing was just right for everyone and they realised that, um, yeah, the knowledge sticks in my head that it maybe doesn't, isn't uh, commonly known to, to a lot of other people who come into the club now that might not have the same asset and following background. So um, I was lucky, yeah, years of years of reading and research and just a passion for what I do, I think, um, rubbed off when they were looking for someone to advise them on a lot of the, the historical side of things. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, have probably absorbed a lot of lot of the material. I know I watched the documentary when it came out, and I've I've listened to the the Fabric podcast every every episode that's dropped. But from I guess from someone of your of your experience and, and looking at the history, uh, you've obviously gone in depth prior to to this putting this together. Was there anything that came out during production that, that surprised you, or something you'd been unaware of before going into this process? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think, like, I knew, obviously, John Coleman's um, dominance as a player and, you know, everyone speaks so highly of him and I, I knew of him as a coach, but I, I probably didn't appreciate just how 
worshipped he was as a coach by, um, by his players. So to see the raw emotion of guys like Ted Fordham and, and, and guys like that who you know, don't, don't openly shed a tear at nothing, they, um, you know, them still to be emotional at having lost John four or five decades ago, it, it shows you the impact that he had on their lives. So I think that was a really found um, part of that documentary in particular is just um, just how loved Coley was, even though he'd call a spade a spade and he'd give you a spray if you needed one. Um, it obviously uh, struck a chord with all of those players from the 1960s who played under him and and uh, still worship him to this day. So that probably, I uh, thought I knew a lot about each era and, and all the key players, but that was probably, yeah, to, to see the strength of uh, the love for him was probably one of the standout things I took away from that. Yeah, I guess it's sort of we're sort of at that end of the, uh, I guess the the scene knowledge of Coleman and, and what he did, and uh, we're lo- we're losing those people. We often talk about how we're losing the the generations that that experience the wars, and you know the same sort of things happening with with players or, or people who saw Reynolds and Coleman and, and Hutchinson and those people. So to really to get the, that down and, and get that recorded, I think it's going to be really important for maintaining the the historical connection for people going forward. Was there anyone uh, that was your favourite interviewee, someone that really stood out, uh, someone that you really enjoyed speaking with? Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky to speak with so many from the different eras at Essendon. I've got a few guys from the 40s uh, for the Dick Reynolds story before they all passed on, so that was a real thrill to speak with them. But a lady who's still around and um, was one of the first people I interviewed, and uh, her name's Pixie McNamee. Uh, Mary's her first name, but she's only ever been called Pixie. But she's um, she's the mother of tennis great Paul McNamee, and she just happens to be Dick Reynolds' younger sister. And uh, it was she's she's just turned just turned a hundred actually um, last last year, I think it was. So she's still still going strong, and she was able to remember back to. Um, uh, childhood days in the late 1920s and um, so it was unbelievable to sit down with her and have Dick's early life and just M- Melbourne and Australian life at the, you know in the 20s and through the depression and and that um, brought to life by her was something that I'll always cherish the opportunity to sit down with her so it surprises a few because I've obviously spoken with James Hurd and Kevin Sheedy and all those greats of the game but uh, to sit down with Pixie was uh, an amazing experience. Yeah, and I, I just sort of building on from that, I guess there's probably a lot of people who you missed out on speaking with just because they they passed away before you got a chance to uh, got a chance to start researching for for the Dick Reynolds story and then for the 150th celebration. I guess of, of the people who were, I, I guess if you could have spoke, spoken to anyone who's no longer with us, who would you have liked to have spoken to? And of the players or uh, officials that you couldn't get a chance to speak to for your work uh, leading up to the 150th year. Who do you wish you'd been able to speak to? Yeah, well, um, uh, other than meeting Dick for five seconds once, um, I'd, I'd love to have been able to sit down and interview him and and also Coleman and Bill Hutchison and uh, Alan Hurd Sr. I would have loved to have picked his brains. He had such an impact um, and was quite a strong figure over many, many years. Uh, I'd love to right back and spoken to the McCrackens. I'd love to have spoken with Albert Thurgood. I'd love to have spoken with Alex Dick, our first premiership captain. Um, you know, there's so many from different eras that I just wish. And then there's the guys from the 20s who played 
in back-to-back premierships and then had a famous game um, where they lost to the VFA team Footscray and a real scandalous event, really, that um, that uh, soured the club for a while. And I would have loved to have sat down with at least one of the participants from that game and got their insights into what went on and what was true and what was what was uh, false. But So there's lots of those ones you just wish or you wish that someone earlier had recorded a lot of this stuff, but you know, people didn't think to do it years and years ago. So there's a lot of those ones. Um, for, the, for the doco, we were pretty... The club were great. They brought in guys from interstate and, you know, we got Graham Moss over, we got Jeff Leth and um, I would have loved to have got uh, Leon Baker down. Uh, Michael Long's always elusive to try and tie down for an interview. He would have been great to get down as well. There's a few of those sort of guys I would have loved to have got there, but thankfully there's, you know, there's audio and visual of them that we were able to incorporate into the documentary. But, um, yeah, there's a few of our favourites. I mean, I, I love I love guys like... Uh, you know, David Flood and Peter Kranzberg and these guys that people don't probably think of first up, but they were all sort of cult figures when we were coming through. Uh, Bradley Plain, guys like that, Paul Hills. Um, and Mark McCurry, I, I was able to bump into him at the gala recently, but I'd love to love to sit down and interview him as well. So there's still a few on my list that I'm hoping to get my way around to. I, uh, I, oh, there was a little bit of feedback there, I think. Uh, so I'll just pause. Uh, I remember meeting Brad, or getting Brad Plain's autograph as a young bloke and I asked him why he always wore long sleeves and he said, uh, and I'm not sure if he was being serious or not, but he said, because I've got really bad tattoos and warned me never to get tattoos. So, uh, yeah, that, that one stuck with me. Uh, were there any stories that you uncovered that you know through your research and, and interviews that didn't make it to either the documentary or, or the book, I guess, over 150 years? That it's a big story to tell. So I imagine there were some things that, that didn't quite make it to print or make it to air. Was was there any that that struck a chord with you that you couldn't quite fit in, and and any that that maybe gave you a good laugh along the way? Um, I'm, I'm big on telling the story of the the premierships in the 1890s. I first team to win four in a row, and it's only been equaled once since at VFL AFL level, and that's uh, an amazing team. Sort of, or does get forgotten because it's so long ago, and no one was really interviewed for it or there's no vision, but it's, that's as good an era as any in the game's history. So I, I'm always big on trying to celebrate that. I, I was limited with the book. There's, you know, it was a structure to the book that they, they like to stick to. So I couldn't elaborate on certain subjects as much as I would have liked. I would have liked to have talked about the losing grand finals just to show the other side of it and um, how close we've come on many, many occasions and we go away and it's, you know, it's a, it's a memory you want to probably forget, but at the same time to have got to that level is, is a story in itself. So I'd love to have uh, delved a bit further into all those losing grand finals as well um, and the famous draw in 48. Um, I, yeah, I'm fascinated in all those stories. Um, eras as well, like the 30s and the 70s, we don't have any success, so to speak, but um, it's still fascinating eras. I love hearing from Robert Shaw about the 70s and Peter Daniel and these guys and I have a fascination with the 30s because of Reynolds and that that team. So I think we need to still hear more about, of those sort of stories as well. We need to hear about the premierships. There's a lot more that goes into making up a club. You know, I would have loved to have spoken to Frank Reid, our, our secretary who was there forever and a day um, and just recruited and oversaw so much of the club's history. Um, so there's lots of those sort of stories that stand out. Um, 
and I'll keep researching, I'll keep trying to tell them because, um, yeah, a new generation needs to know all this. I, I think so much of the, the Essendon history or story that instinctively comes to mind, you know, fortunate or unfortunately, sits with Kevin Sheedy. He obviously did a lot to, to turn the club around post that 70s era. And then even the 62 and 65 uh, premierships get overlooked a little bit because we tend to then rewind back to the, the Coleman and, and Reynolds era, eras. eras. Uh, do you, do you, there's some Essendon people that, along the way, players, people that you think don't get enough credit or get the credit that they deserve for their impact on the club and where it sits today? Yeah, well, I think. I think a lot of those guys in those eras between premierships deserve more as well. You know, they've had to do the hard yards and um, put up with the losses, yet they, you know, for many of them, they stuck at the club regardless of the, the lack of success. Um, so I think I think even guys like Reg Burgess, who's still around, I would have loved to have interviewed him for the doctor as well, but um, he wasn't available, I don't think. But he, he um, you know, he's in our team of the century, but played in between two eras, um, just missed the, the final period of the Reynolds playing days and then left at the start of the, the Coleman coaching days. So, he, you know, he was a star for us during that era, but just didn't get the, the premiership that um, his, some of his teammates got a year or two later. So guys like that, I think um, I would have loved to have spoken to Keith Forbes in the third. He was the, the star before Reynolds came along and again, he didn't get to play in any success either. So... Um, I think I think we need to. Um, I know at I know at Hawthorne that they, they win a premiership in '91 and then they don't win another one until 2008. And that group in the middle, I'm trying, to, I can't think what they call themselves. They dubbed themselves something. It's to do with the fact that there's a 17 year wait and they're all part of this group that didn't win one but were there for this era. And I think that's important to to celebrate with. Um, you know, we need to find some positives out of the last 20 years. You know, there's a lot of players that haven't played in premierships for us. And then again in the 70s, So, if we can celebrate them in some way, I think that'd be really great because um, it's not just about the team that runs out on grand final. There's a fair bit that goes into building up for those years and there's some hard luck stories or some injury stories. And uh, We need to make sure that everyone is acknowledged, which I've tried to do, I guess, with the birthdays that I post each day. If you played one game or 400, I've, I've tried to show everyone that, you know, we're all part of this one club and happy birthday to everyone because um, you've all played your part in some way. Yeah, I've, I've, I've loved the birthday messages. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of people that I'd forgotten or, or players that I'd forgotten pop up and, and obviously some that I'd never heard of. They've been really good. I, I remember when Mark McVeigh played his 200th game, um, at the time, he'd become just the second Essendon player to play 200 games without having won a premiership, which which speaks a lot to, you know, the success Essendon had, had up until that point. Um, I'm pretty sure Ken Fletcher, was who played through that 70s era, was the only other one. Obviously, things have changed uh, over the last, you know, 20-odd years, and, and it'll be interesting to see how you know, in 20, 30, 40 years' time, people like Joe Watson and Michael Hurley and Carl Hooker and, and these types of, yeah, real lesson champions are, are remembered. But um, obviously at the moment, things aren't going as well as, as we would like without kind of dwelling too much on on that. How's, how's your, you know, what's your sort of take on on what's happening at the present and are there any players in the current group that, that yourself and Ernie really enjoy watching play? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think... Uh... Ernie was a bit shattered when Tipper 
pulled the pin this year. And <laughs> it was his, it was his favourite player. He's only he's five, and he says this year's his first year. He started to really see faces and recognise numbers, and you know, so he loves a Sammy Draper and obviously Dyson Heppel from my hometown. And um, it, it's cool when you're now seeing the team and the club through a little boy's eyes, and I think that's uh, gives you a whole new. You know, there's been times I've wanted to probably um, rant negatively about how things are going, but then I realise that he's seeing it from a completely different angle, and it's um, it's a cool way to see it as well. So I've enjoyed that side of it, and it's probably given me some perspective during a frustrating season on the field. But um, yeah, look, I, there's lots of um, tipping points along the way where the empire, I guess, crumbled in terms of the on-field success. I mean, you speak to speak to Kevin Sheedy and these guys and they say that you know, a preliminary final was our expectation um, for pretty much all of his reign, you know, certainly up until 2001, it was something that that anything less than that was a failure almost in a season, so that attitude needs to come back, I mean you can't get there every year, but getting there as much as we were in the Sheeds era, um, it changes the whole way the club's viewed and that's, that's where we need to get back to um, but in the meantime, you know, we've got some really exciting kids, I think, that we can look forward to seeing for the next, hopefully, decade. Um, you know, Coxie, when he gets back, and um, uh, Reed's going to be fantastic, and I like Durham and uh, Hobbs, all these guys. And uh, they're going to be – it's important that we have these heroes because otherwise we're going to lose a generation of kids as supporters, which is just natural. St Kilda lost me when I was a kid because they weren't having any success um, you know, and suddenly all I know is Essendon. So that, that might happen for other kids if, um, if they're not seeing their team successful. And I think that's what we're seeing with some of the messaging out of David Barham recently is, you know, we, we can't afford to lose this generation of kids who might suddenly jump to Melbourne because they're winning or, you know, it's a really important phase in our history, I think. And um, it can be seen as an exciting phase too. I, I, no one wants to see coaches or players or execs depart the club but you know if, if it's going to get us to where we need to go in the long run it's, it's what needs to happen I guess and um, I'm still quite excited for the future I think we've got some uh, yeah as I said some exciting kids and um, we've got a supporter base there that's pretty keen to, to go nuts as soon as we start winning so <laughs> as soon as we can do that guys like yourself Jonathan and <laughs> we'll be up and about won't we and it'll be it'll be fantastic yeah I'll yeah. I'll be unbearable when we start winning again. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, just just in general, we're, we're for those listening, we're recording on the morning that it was announced that uh, Xavier Campbell uh, was resigning. And then obviously there's a, a few people stepping down from the board, obviously a couple of days removed from the removal of Ben Rutten. Uh, you, you spoke about how you, you originally were contacted by Xavier to work on the 150th. And I know that uh, one of the things that really stood out to me about Ben Rutten's tenure was his wanting to connect uh, the players back to the history. Did, what, were, what were your, just in terms of your interactions with, with those two, what were, what were your opinions of, of them and, and, and how they, they saw things, I guess? Yeah, look, in terms of Xavier, I, you know, I, I had good dealings with him and he was, you know, he'd always respond if I approached him about something and um, facilitate things where he could. And we had a few ideas in the works that we were hoping to make happen going forward, which I hope whoever comes in, I can have that conversation again. But, um, you know, we, he came in during a time when things were pretty dark and, you know, he was able to, what he was able to do financially was amazing. Um, 
and uh, shows the character of the man to be able to do that. Um, people have their opinions on other aspects of his performance, but in that part alone, I think that was pretty important and we need to acknowledge that because, um, yeah, things could have gone completely off the rails financially if um, someone like him wasn't there to do what they did. So, um, yeah, that, that's over. And Ben, I actually never got to meet Ben, which I was really disappointed about because I, I was so excited by the fact that he embraced the history in a way that, you know, many outsider coaches wouldn't do. You know, we were lucky Sheedy did that when he came from Richmond, but he'd grown up an Essendon fan, so he probably understood it a bit more. But when you come from another club and you've never been at Essendon, you know, it's easy to wipe that clean and just want to make your own mould. But for him to really um, approach that and soak that up, he started the Alex McCracken medal, which is an internal thing. So hopefully that, that continues amongst the, the players and the coaches going forward. But um, so I really tried to get it. And I think, um, yeah, I really respected him for that. And I would have loved to have sat down and had a chat with him about that. But again, as we know, and we've seen over history, um, results are results. And uh, we've got a pretty frustrated supporter base, including sponsors and coteries and things. And we're just, we're well overdue for hope and success. So, um, well, we've got some good sprouts there amongst the playing group. Um, we've still got a way to go to be that powerhouse on the field again, and that's that's unfortunately the win-loss industry that we're in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a it's a good reminder that not everything at Essendon is premierships and celebrations. You know, obviously had a fair share of drama and challenges. Obviously, the saga is still uh, very fresh in the minds of, of Essendon fans. So how important are these stories to documenting the history of the football club? And I guess... When, it's, when you're not talking about the celebration and, you know, the highs, how do you approach uh, talking to people about these these sort of events? I'm probably, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who always craved the truth in stories, so I don't like to brush over the, the uh, um, you know, the disappointing aspects of a, of a history, whether it's a biography I'm writing or it's a club history. I don't want it to be sort of, just wiped from the slate of the story for the sake of um, because it was too painful to experience. I think we need to understand what went on and whatever it might be. It might be the fallout of the Windy Hill brawl or it might be, uh, you know, supporters not happy that we moved from Windy Hill to MCG or or the bribery scandal back in the 20s, all these famous incidents or events that rocked the club at various times, including obviously most recently. I think we still need to talk about it. Um, but tell it. Through the per- through the people, you know, and, and and I've tried to do that whenever I've done any of these incidents. Try to get the personal stories about how it affected people, or how it was reported in the paper, or how you know to really understand it beyond just the emotional tug of your own bias towards the towards an incident. How how are things played out, um, you know, at, at club level? How are past players viewed an event? How you know how are things seen, and and how do they feel today about it? And I think. That's a good way to really understand it, um, and and add some sort of humanity to it because we can we can look at it pretty cold what happened recently and and uh, and just go blow by blow and the pretty ugly reporting at times and um, but if you then get Job's views on it or you get um, Kevin Sheedy's views or whoever it might be, it, I think it helps to provide a different perspective and hopefully a more rounded perspective about what exactly went on at a certain time and how, how a club was able to work its way through that. Yeah, absolutely. I think as, as you say, you can't, you can't bury it. You have to, under, you have to understand it. And then 
you know, you, you need to learn from, learn from those events and, you know, how, how you treat people and, and how you deal with, with serious issues as a football club is, is really important to moving forward. But your writing isn't just Essendon focused though. So you've done uh, books on Carlton and North Melbourne. Uh, you've done biographies of Olympians, uh, Nova Paris and Lydia Lasilla. And then your latest release is on the, the great goal kicker, Peter Hudson. So what's attracted to you to these sort of stories in particular? Were you approached to do them or are these things that you've gone about of your own initiative? Uh, yeah, most were. Most of my own, my own stories that I came up with or approached subjects, um, I... As I said, when I was a kid, I was just obsessed with sport history in general, whether it was cricket or you know, overseas sports or, or footy. Um, so I, I felt I got a pretty rounded view of all clubs' histories. I know some historians, it's just their club, and that's probably the 90% of what they know is just their club. But I sort of pride myself on trying to know about as many of the clubs as possible and have some sort of understanding. And you learn a lot more when you do start to write a book on a certain era you know i grew up as we all did grew up hating carlton really and um and then you you start interviewing all the guys i did from the late 70s early 80s period when they had a lot of success and you realize that uh they're, they're as good a blokes as the blokes we've got at Essendon. it's just they're wearing the wrong jumper so to delve into their histories and it also gives you a different perspective of your own club and and how different it is in certain areas and sometimes it's better sometimes it's worse but uh um, so I enjoy that I do, and uh, and Hawthorne, you know, I met Peter Crimmins' widow Gwen, and within ten minutes of meeting Gwen, she'd broken down and was quite emotional about talking about Peter, and this was forty, fifty years after he passed. So you realise that there was a real emotional story there that needed to be told. So that that happened, and then Peter Hudson came on the on the scene, and I approached Peter, and you know, I was keen to tell his story, and he'd never told it before, so. I was able to build a relationship with Pete and that, that came out and he, he loved how the story was told. So those sort of things are really rewarding when you finish and you hand it to the subject and you cross your fingers that you haven't completely stuffed it up and it's always nice when they get back to you and tell you that um, they, they've enjoyed what you've done. So, um, yeah, but, uh, a few more essence stories uh, hopefully in the works. Well, that was, that was going to be my next question. Like what, what, what have you got in mind for your next projects or anything you can share? Or is it all a bit hush-hush at the moment? Oh, it's, yeah, I'm just trying to um, confirm a few things. I've been speaking with the Essendonians of late. Well, I've got a few ideas. I want to work in with them and they're keen to support me and, and on some future projects, lots more interviewing. I want our club to be extremely well documented in terms of its oral history. So I'm keen to um, get that project underway and get around to as many past players as possible and, and coaches and officials and, and, you know, just document as much of it as you say. You know, some of our earlier guys from the 60s and 50s, they're, you know, life, life's moving on and eventually if their stories aren't told, we lose those stories. So I want to get around to everyone as I if I can. Uh, I just... Just trying to work out how I can do that at the moment, but I'll, I'll, that's that's something in the works, and I, I think I might have to look at what's happened in the past twenty odd years too, and have a, have a delve into how things have tracked since we had our famous uh, premiership in two thousand. Well, I think just just on that, I mean, it's probably it'd probably be a good book when we in our next premiership, you know, premiership to premiership or something along those lines, and looking at the dips and and what led to the next premiership, which is hopefully in the next, uh, you know, next half a decade. I, w- I would say hopefully, um, but yeah, so that, that would be something quite interesting. I would think. 
Yeah, for sure. I'm reading one at the moment by a Melbourne supporter on the, you know, the call between the flags and, you know, it's between their 64 and, and 2021 flags. And I thought, oh, this is exactly what I need to do for, for Essendon because ours is becoming a bit of a up and down journey as well. So, um, yeah, you're right. I might have a couple of years to uh, get it all in order. <laughs> Hopefully we we don't have to wait quite as long as as these <laughs> as the these fans did. But uh, yeah, Dan, thanks so much, mate, for for spending some time with us. It's it's been a huge thrill for for both Ian and I. And I think just also, if I can, on behalf of of Essen fans, really, just thank you for all the work you've done uh, in the lead up to our 150th year, and and even uh, the stories that you've told on on Essen players uh, previous to that. I think we're we're really as fans, as fans, we're really lucky to to have access to the work that you've done, and and I don't think it's ever been more important than it is right now with with everything that's going on. To remember the, the rich, the good, and the bad history that our that our club has. So, yeah, thank you, mate, for for keeping us and fans engaged and connected with with our history. And um, yeah, really appreciate you you taking some time out to have a chat to us. Um, if there's people out there that are interested in, in learning more about your work, and I'm sure there is, or, or connecting with you, what's the best way for, for people to, to connect and, and find out more about what you've done? Yeah, no, thanks for all that. Uh, you can you can uh, just type in daneddybooks.com and check out all my work on the website or, um, yeah, or my Dan Eddie Books Facebook page or uh, I think one of my called on Twitter, maybe Dr. Dan or something. But... Um, <laughs> You, uh, yeah, if you look up any of those, you'll you'll find what I'm doing there. And uh, I've been uh, just a quick one. I just um, Michael Mapleton was one of our first real serious historians, I guess, and um, published a couple of early books and and was fantastic at documenting things. And um, just recently, he's moved house and he said, "I'm done with um, all my history documentation." So what I'm uh, what I'm going to do is um, throw a lot of this stuff out. And I said, uh, I might just bring the car down if that's okay. And I'll uh, just back it up. And uh, it's amazing. I was able to uh, fill the car a couple of times with, uh, with a lot of the great man's material. So I've got a wealth of stuff here at home now to go through. It's just pretty exciting for a, a hoarder like me who loves to <laughs> delve into the history. That's awesome. Man. I'm looking forward to seeing some snippets of it when you get a chance to share some of it. Yeah, no, it won't be long. It's, uh, but, yeah, there's not much room now, not much spare room in the house. There's a fair few folders, and Michael kept literally everything. So I'm, uh, it's a gold mine for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we link uh, links to your website and to your Twitter and your Facebook page uh, in the description of this episode as well. So if you're wanting to access any of Dan's work, uh, click those links in the description. Appreciate it, guys.